Amen. Well, if you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. We're making our way through Paul's letter to the Colossians, and this is week three. We're going to look at verses 15 through 23 this morning. But before we do that, let's pray one more time and ask for God's blessing upon our time together. Father, the two words that come to my mind now for this time is faithfulness and fruitfulness. We pray that as I preach and as we hear and listen and together sit under your word this morning, that there would be, that, that would be done with great faithfulness, that the preaching would be accurate to your word and that the hearing would be attentive and eager and receptive. And we pray for fruitfulness to come from it. Your word is living and active. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. It never returns to you void. So grant that it would receive a fruitful reception this morning in all of our hearts, such that we would live in accord with it and bear testimony to it for your glory through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, it would be no surprise to you to know that high-definition television has taken over the consumer market and redefined everything from news telecasts to sporting events. The goal of HDTV is to provide the clearest picture possible and to stimulate seeing the telecast events firsthand such that you were almost there. For at-home viewers, it's like being there because the picture is so remarkably vivid. But even with the high definition becoming the universal standard, there is an interesting fact about HDTV that's largely unknown. While there have been significant technological advances, the magic I'm going to let the cat out of the bag this morning. The magic of HDTV is not primarily the result of image modification. The underlying concept that produces such a crystal clear picture is actually based on a principle that changes how we perceive the image. In other words, it's a change in our perspective that can produce a more accurate and realistic view of what we're seeing. The goal is to allow a particular object on the screen to occupy a greater percentage of our visual field. And when the point of focus consumes the majority of the field of vision, we see that object with enhanced clarity. The same principle can be applied to our perception of Jesus. Oftentimes, our view of Jesus is cluttered with the distracting details of our lives or the misconstrued facts about His that compete for our focus and attention. We can lose sight of Jesus and end up with a concept of him that's vague and blurry. But but this is especially critical for us because a less than accurate view of Jesus affects everything else. Our faith becomes distorted, our hearts become discouraged, and our lives are disrupted. In contrast, a closer examination, a more intense focus on Jesus can actually help us adjust our view of him, clarify his identity, and put everything else within its proper perspective. The resulting high-definition view of Jesus will help us see him more clearly and, as a result, worship him more passionately and serve him more faithfully. Historically, theologians, those who study the Scriptures, the Bible, have approached the person of Jesus Christ, or what we, the doctrine of what we might call Christology, by using two parallel categories when talking about Jesus to help bring him, bring him into a more high-definition focus. And those two categories are his person, who he is, and his work, 
what he did or what he does or what he's done. The person of Christ refers to his essence. The work of Christ refers to his atonement, his cross work, his resurrection, his life and death for us. The two are inextricably linked because a proper understanding of the work of Christ is largely dependent upon a sound conception of his person, knowing who he is. So our sermon this morning, we are going to see those two aspects play themselves out. In verses 13 and 14, which we considered last week, we read, He, talking about Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. That's the person of Jesus. God's beloved Son. And here's His work, verse 14, In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so Paul's going to take those two concepts from verses 13 and 14, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and open them up in verses 15 to 23. Verses 15 through 19 are a look at who Jesus is and answer the question, who is Jesus? And verses 20 through 23 will focus on what Jesus has done for us. So that's my goal this morning is to bring Jesus into high definition, to talk very clearly and plainly and simply, I hope, about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, there is no greater thing we can consider this morning, period, than who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So please, please pay attention. Here's number one. Let's answer the question, who is Jesus? And we're going to do that by pulling out six observations from verses 15 through 19. If you've got One of the sermon guides that I've put outside, you're welcome to follow along on the screen. They'll be up here as well, and you can fill those in as we go through. First, here's the first thing we learn about Jesus. Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, this word image, if you know your Bibles... The word image shows up on the first page of the Bible, the first page, and it's referring to Adam and Eve when they were created as the first man and the first woman. God says in Genesis 1:27, let us make man in our own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So what we're meant to see here is we have to bring the Bible into this word. And when we bring the Bible into this word, we understand that what Paul is saying here about Jesus is that Jesus is the new Adam. He's the one in whom that God's image is ultimately reflected. He makes known the image, or he makes known God. He's the only one in whom the glory of God, indeed God himself, has become manifest. Remember John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is why Jesus can say in John chapter 14, verse 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Because Jesus is the portrait, the icon, the image of what God looks like, of who God is. Jesus is bears God's image 
as the new Adam. So he's the image of God. He's the one in whom we see God most manifest. He's God's portrait. He's God's icon. Number two, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. We see that in the second half of verse 15, using that very language. Now, sometimes we use the word firstborn to refer to the oldest member in a family. I was the firstborn of my mother 37 years ago. But in the Bible, it can also be used to describe a person's authority and title and their position. In fact, Psalm 89, verse 27, describes David, King David, as the firstborn, quote, the highest of the kings of the earth. Psalm 89, 27. Now, was David the firstborn in his family? No. He was the last son of Jesse. So, obviously, that title firstborn for David did not indicate temporal birth in his family, but rather a title that had nothing to do with birth order, but his royal rank as the king of Israel. And so that's why we read in Psalm 89, 27, that David is the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So firstborn, brothers and sisters, does not mean created. It does not mean first person to be created, as the Jehovah's Witnesses believe about this verse, which is why they teach that Jesus is a God's first created being. But this cannot be the case because firstborn, first of all, doesn't always mean that in the Bible. And secondly, notice the second verse after verse 15, verse 16. For by him all things were created. That does not include him. He is uncreated and he is the one through whom all things were created. We'll get to that more in just a second. So Jesus is in the language of this firstborn of all creation, meaning he is the king of all things. He is, the ro- he is the most royal. He occupies the highest place of authority and position and preeminence in the universe. Number three, Jesus is the agent, goal, and sustainer of creation. Agent, the one through whom it happened. Goal, the one it exists for. And sustainer, the one who keeps it going. Another way we could say it is Jesus is the center of creation. Let's see this in verses 16 and 17. Notice what Paul writes. He says, For by him, that is by Jesus or through Jesus, all things were created. So he's the agent of creation. This creation came into existence. This world, these galaxies, these planets came into existence through the Son of God. So by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. See, this creation that we live in and the creation created world that we can't see, that our telescopes try to grasp, was all created for Jesus wasn't created for us. It's created for him. It was created to demonstrate and display his preeminence and his power and his glory. 
Notice that he's not only the agent of creation and the goal of creation, but he's also the sustainer, the sustainer of creation. We see that in verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, before we get to that, let's just talk about this phrase, before all things. He is before all things. I think this phrase refers to both his temporal existence, that is, he existed long before anything he ever created, he's eternal, he's before everything he created, but also he is before it in terms of his supremacy, his preeminence, his rank, his royalty, his dignity, his worth. He's before all of that. And he stands before it and lives before it as the eternal king of all things. So he's before all things, and in him, in him, all things hold together. Have you ever thought about this or appreciated this, that the universe owes its continuing existence to Jesus Christ? Did you know that the fact that we can predict a solar eclipse tomorrow is dependent upon the continuing work of Jesus Christ to cohere and sustain the universe according to the laws that he created. If it weren't that way, the reason why we can predict things, that days have a certain flow to them, and the sun comes, becomes visible, and the earth rotates, and all this is happening is because Jesus is causing it to happen. He's sustaining it. Without him, gravity would cease to work. You couldn't sit in your seat this morning. The planets wouldn't stay in orbit. He sustains all things, guides all things, and is, and is, as in, is in the process of providentially bringing all things to their proper consummation in him and for him. According to Acts 17, verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being. We are breathing, our hearts are beating, our brains are working, our, all of our systems in our body are operating because of Jesus Christ. He is the one that we derive our very existence from and our ongoing existence because of. It's an amazing vision of Jesus here. This Jesus is big. He's not the Middle Eastern peasant good teacher that so many in our culture make him out to be. He's the sovereign king. Fourthly, he's the head of the church. He's the head of the church. We see this in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. This is an amazing statement as well. This means way more, brothers and sisters, than just that Jesus is the sovereign ruling authority over his people. That, it certainly means that. Certainly. He's the head over his church. But also, it means that he's the source from which we, his body, derive all spiritual sustenance and power. So he's not simply the head of the church like the Queen of England is the head of England. Some sort of honorary or traditional position without any function in the daily operations or administration of the country. No, Jesus exerts a functional authority over and in and through his body. He can be trusted 
to govern, guide, protect, direct, provide instruction to, and power for, and life to his church. If we will look to him and draw resources from him, the resources that he so generously supplies to us as the head of the church. So we're ever dependent, brothers and sisters, we're ever dependent upon Jesus and his abiding influence and his presence as his relationship with not just our local church here, but his universal bride all over the world. He has an organic, living, vital relationship to those assemblies. And so Jesus is the head of the church. And we're going to we're going to mine that concept out throughout this letter of Colossians as we see Paul apply this idea of Jesus being the head of the church to the various spheres of the life of the church. So I'm not going to camp out there right now, but we will get there in time. Fifthly, Jesus is the founder of a new humanity. Jesus is the founder of a new humanity. Notice verse 18 again in the middle. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, I don't think this phrase, he is the beginning, has a reference primarily to Genesis 1, although there are probably echoes of that here. But the reason why I say that is because he, Paul qualifies it with this phrase, the firstborn from the dead, which happened in time. So what he's saying is, he is the beginning, when he rose from the dead, there was a new creation that came into existence. That's why this verse, you perhaps know as a Christian, you've known it a long time, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And we talk about that verse rightly. It's nothing wrong to talk about that verse as a conversion verse, as a new life verse, as a born-again verse. You know, we've been born into this new kingdom and we have this new way of life. But think about it. When you are brought into the kingdom, in the language of verses 13 and 14 from our previous passage last week, when you are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son, it implies that his son has a kingdom. Right? He has a kingdom that exists. And it exists because he rose from the dead and was installed by the God the Father at his right hand as the prince and king of a new creation. And so, Paul says... Christ is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, I want you to notice something here. Genesis chapter 49, if you want to go back there, you can. If not, I'll just turn there quickly and read this verse. Genesis 49 puts the words firstborn and beginning together. And I want you to notice how, it, how Moses does this, writing the book of Genesis. Genesis 49, verse 3 Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. So notice, he uses the word firstborn, then he talks about firstfruits, or beginning, a new beginning, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. So that verse alone, taking those concepts, indicates the founding of a new people. God's saying, through Reuben, through this family line, I'm going to continue and establish and continue my redemptive purpose by founding a new people. So is Jesus, that by virtue of his resurrection from the dead, he is the founder of a new humanity. Here's what C.S. Lewis writes. He says, the New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. 
He's the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open the door that has been locked since the death of the first man. Don't you love that? He kicked open that door. Death no longer will be the last word over this humanity because Christ conquered it. And so if you want to escape death and have death be a transport into life, you need to get in union with the one who has life within himself and is the head of the new humanity. Lewis continues, He has fought, met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has been opened. Jesus is the founder of a new humanity. And since we are on the subject of this, let me talk a little bit about some recent events in our country related to supremacy. And I hope you know what I'm talking about. I'm referring to white supremacy. In light of the recent events in Charlottesville and the ongoing racial tension in our culture, which will exist until Jesus comes back in various forms, we need to be reminded of where we stand as God's people here and the, the head to which we belong. White supremacy in the ultimate sense can't exist because the supreme person in the universe isn't white. The Son of God inhabits Jewish flesh. He's not a white man. Christianity started among brown people who were all Jews by a brown man for the sake of all people. It was then promulgated by more brown people like Augustine and Athanasius so that all people could be forgiven through the red blood of the brown man sent to the cross by white people in the capital city of his brown people. Russell Moore writes, Blood and soil ethnic nationalism is just a, a deviant is not just a deviant social movement. It is the same old idolatry of the flesh, the human being seeking to deify his own flesh and blood as God. The scripture defines this attempt at human self-exaltation with a number, 666. White supremacy does not merely attack our society, though it does, and the ideals of our nation, though it does. White supremacy attacks the image of Jesus Christ himself. White supremacy exhausts the creature over the creator and the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against it. This sort of ethnic nationalism and racial superiority ought to matter to every Christian regardless of national, ethnic, or racial background. After all, we are not our own but, but are part of a church, a church made up of all nations, all ethnicities, united not by blood and soil but by the shed blood and broken body of Jesus Christ. The church should call white supremacy what it is, terrorism. But more than that, but more than terrorism, white supremacy is Satanism. And brothers and sisters, it does not merely exist among those who wear a hood. It exists in the church. It may exist here this morning. And if it exists in your heart, repent. Repent of it this morning or you will be crushed by the brown man on the last day. Even worse, white supremacy is a devil worship 
that often pretends that it's speaking for God. Racism has no place in the church. I would rather be fired than lose my integrity and betray my Lord for things like that. And I hope pastors all over this nation would be willing to do it and stand to their churches and call them to account if there is any vestiges of white supremacy in their midst because it must not be named among us as God's people because the supreme person of the universe who sits on the throne is not white. Finally, uh, an image about Jesus. Lastly, number six, Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh. Look at verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This has echoes of chapter 2, verse 9, where Paul again says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This passage is an explicit and unashamed declaration of the full Godhood of Jesus Christ. He is absolute deity, fully God and fully man. And he is the God-man forever. Because in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so now with that, we turn our attention to what he has done. Now, I want you to appreciate this because this, I think meditating on this for a period of time gives us a new appreciation for the humility and the love and the mercy and the grace of our God in giving this precious jewel of the universe for our sin. Can you think about that for a moment? I mean, it's when you think about the worth, the dignity, the beauty of Jesus Christ as the image of God, the firstborn over all creation, the one by whom and through whom and for whom all things came into existence, God in the flesh, the head of the church, the glorious founder and representative of a new humanity. It's as you think about that, that we are humbled by the fact that he would come after us And he couldn't think of an eternity apart from a multitude of people that didn't deserve his love. And it's this Jesus now that we turn to and consider what he has done for us. So when you read Philippians chapter 2, and you see that the Lord Jesus humbled himself and took on flesh and became a man and gave himself up to the death of the cross, I hope you carry this image of yourself, of him, with you as you read read a text like that, that this Jesus is one who is great and glorious. And notice, before we get into what Jesus has done, I really want us to think and meditate on and appreciate the fact that God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit really, really wanted to do this. Do you see that in verse 19? For in him all the fullness of God was pleased, was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile? Jesus didn't begrudge a body. God the Father didn't begrudge sending a son. The Holy Spirit didn't begrudge anointing the God-man. This was the pleasure of God to do this. It was the good pleasure, the desire, the deepest want, the deepest passion of God to cause his son eternal to dwell in human flesh and to become a man. 
And so now we see what he's done. And notice what he's done here. He has reconciled to himself all things. This is the big work. This is the big work. The big work is reconciliation. We see it in verse 20, where it says, through him to reconcile to himself all things. And we see it in verse 22, where it says, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So reconciliation is the work of Jesus that is being talked about here. Now, what does that imply? What does the word reconciliation imply? It implies that we and the world are at enmity with God. That we, the world is a broken, messy, fallen creation, which necessitates a reconciling work of God in order to bring it back to oneness again. So the events that we've referred to early in the sermon, whether they be in Charlottesville or Barcelona or anywhere else, are just one example in a long list of historical brokenness. Read the headlines and we see evidence of moral decay, international conflict, social injustice, political corruption, domestic abuse, environmental degradation. We live in a disaster zone. A good world gone wrong with the mayhem of suffering and sin that nevertheless has vestiges of goodness still to it. Lots because it was created by a good God and is sustained by a good Jesus. But the good news The good news, brothers and sisters, is that our triune God is a disaster renovation specialist. And the gospel is about his cosmic rescue plan. His gracious purpose to relieve the disaster that's caused by wickedness and sin. In the words of Herman Bovink, which is the most, this is one of the most helpful summaries of the teaching of the entire Bible I've ever read. He says, the essence of the Christian religion consists in this that the creation of the Father, devastated by sin, is restored in the death of the Son of God and recreated by the Holy Spirit into the kingdom of God. That's the Bible. It's the story of the Bible. And so Colossians 1, 20-23 that we're going to look at now highlights the supremacy of Jesus, the Son of God, in this plan for restoration and redemption. This passage is about God's plan to fix the world through Jesus. God's plan to fix the world through Jesus. And let's see how he does it. First of all, we're going to look at the necessity of reconciliation. I've already hinted at it briefly because I've talked about, and you, in one sense, this is the one point of the sermon that does not have to be proven. Just live a day, right? Live a day in the world. Live a couple weeks, live a month, live a year, and you will realize, huh, this world's kind of tough. It's kind of broken. And it's because creation is estranged from God. Verse 20 says that through Jesus, he is going, God is going to reconcile all things. So that implies, like I said, that the world is estranged from God. But not only is the world estranged from God, we by nature as human beings are estranged from God. Verse 22, or verse 21, you were once, this is who we were before we became Christians, and you who once were alienated, that is, estranged, unreconciled, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled. So we're part of the problem too. So here's the good news, though, is that Christ's work seeks to undo what human sin has brought on creation. Remember, in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, there was a fourfold or a threefold alienation that was introduced into the world, a threefold brokenness. 
Man's relationship with God was broken. Man's relationship with man was broken. Man's relationship within himself was broken. And man's relationship to creation. So I said threefold, I should have said four, 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 four folds. So let me repeat the fourfold brokenness again. There's man's relationship to God that's broken. There's man's relationship within himself that's broken. There's man's relationship to man relationally. And then there's man's relationship to creation. So spiritually, relationally, psychologically, environmentally broken. And Jesus' work of reconciliation is God's solution to all four of those forms of brokenness. And he's going to bring about healing in all of those realms. Because God's work in Christ has in view the reclamation of the entire universe. Everything that sin has spoiled. The peace that God seeks is not only a peace that applies to humans in their relationship to God. The peace that Christ's work on the cross is meant to achieve is not just a peace that just trying to get people to be reconciled or people within themselves to experience some sort of psychological unity and oneness or just the relationship of man to creation. No, the work of Christ and his accomplishment and reconciliation addresses all four areas of brokenness. So peace is more than just a ceasefire between God and humanity. It's the restoration of cosmic and relational harmony under the supreme lordship of Christ across all domains of existence. The work of Jesus is glorious. That he can, through his cross work, accomplish not only the relation, the, the, the break, address the breakdown between God and humanity, but can, but, but can address the breakdown across all domains of existence. Relationally between people subjectively within a person themselves and with the very creation itself, which is groaning. So, just one side question to look at here, and I'm not going to deal with this in great detail at all. But notice again, verse 20 says, through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So does that all things, does that mean that everybody's going to be saved? Because it says that Jesus is going to reconcile to himself all things. So does that imply even people who don't believe? And I mean, he's just going to, does it teach universalism? No. Look how the paragraph is organized. Most answers to the Bible that people have are answered by keep reading. If you, have, if you ever get a question about the Bible, just say keep reading. Just keep reading, keep reading. Keep reading. It'll answer it. And so let's keep reading. Making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 21. And you, who once were alienated, he has now reconciled through his body of flesh by death. He's talking to the church there. So the all things here has the whole creation in view, just like we've been talking about. The whole universe is in view. And the point is that Christ is preeminent over all creation because he made it and he holds it together. And so now he's, and he's also the head of the body, the church, and he is now at work in reconciling all things. Doesn't mean every single person, as obvious from verses 21 and 23, those are the people that get reconciled, the church, the, that's the humanity that's reconciled. But the all things includes the things we talked about. It includes creation. It includes relationships. It includes those sorts of things as well. So it's not just focused on man's relationship with God. It's focused on the entire creation, so don't let that trip you up. 
Secondly, we've talked about the necessity of reconciliation. Let's talk about the means of reconciliation. How is God going to bring this reconciling work about? It's through Christ's death on the cross. That's said two times here. Notice verse 20, making peace by the blood of his cross. And verse 22, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So the death of Jesus on the cross is the way in which God is going to accomplish this reconciling work. Number three, the purpose of reconciliation. Notice the purpose. Look at verse 22 again at the end. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is a great, great verse. It implies that though we once, before we were Christians, we were alienated, we were hostile, we were doing all sorts of evil, he has now reconciled us through the death of Christ in order that we, when we stand before God on that last day, we will be presented as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Don't you look forward to that? You should look forward to judgment, Christian. Look forward to it. Because this promise gives you God's attitude towards you on that day. He's going to see you as holy, blameless, and above reproach. You say, but I'm not holy, blameless, and above reproach in and of myself. And you aren't. But through Jesus you are, and you'll be glorified then. Which is a part of the work of Christ that will be applied to you when you die which is the complete and total removal of all sin from you. You say, but what about my past? What about those sins that I committed in this life on the earth? Yeah, those are done away with too. Through the death of Jesus, who has now reconciled you. You are not alienated anymore. You are not hostile anymore. You are not committed in practice to doing evil anymore. You are a reconciled child of God who is seen by the Father as holy and blameless and above reproach. That is the way the Lord views you. Now you say, okay, but how does that relate? I mean, look at the next verse. It seems to like, look at the next verse. It seems to like throw a condition on it. And this is number four, the condition of reconciliation. If, it's a big if, isn't it? Say, I'm I'm reconciled, I'm not alienated, I'm not hostile, I don't do evil deeds by practice and by continuance without repentance anymore. I, yes, I do evil, but I repent and I, I, I seek to get it out of my life. And, and God says that he views me as holy, blameless, and above reproach if, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. What does it mean in this verse to continue? It means that you don't let go of the gospel. It doesn't mean that you're a perfect person. It doesn't mean that you don't struggle. It means you're not going to abandon Jesus and the hope that he provides. You're not going to ship, which was a threat to these Colossian Christians, which we'll get to in the coming weeks. They were being threatened by some other teachers who had come in and said, yeah, we get it, Jesus is good, but you need some more. You need some additional knowledge. 
You need some more things that you need to be believing in and holding to than what Jesus has provided. And Paul's meant to write this letter like he does in Galatians and other, other letters to say, no, Jesus is enough. You don't need anything else. You need Christ and what he has done for you and holding on to that and not shifting from that and anchoring your hope in that. And this is all too critical because it implies that those who abandon that will not inherit salvation on the last day. So this is a motivation, this is a warning, this is a call from Paul to this church saying, listen to me, Colossians, I've told you a lot of good news up front here since verse 1. I've been talking about what God's been doing for you and all the good work he's been bearing in you and all the gospel fruit that's coming from your lives and all the faith, hope, and love and all the things I'm praying for you that would become a reality in your life. And I'm reminding you who Jesus is and what he does. Don't you dare leave Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's warning them, don't you dare walk away from Jesus and think there won't be consequences. There will be consequences because this is the hope of the gospel that you heard, which is being proclaimed. And it's, but, it, but isn't it the kind of warning that you're so thankful to receive? <laughs> I mean, this is, it's not like, now you better be completely holy and above reproach and blameless before him or you're not going to make it in. No, he's saying, you're all, you were once alienated, hostile, once committed to evil. You've now been reconciled. Now, now, now. You're going to be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before him if you continue. If you continue. No continuation, no presentation. You don't continue, you won't get presented. You say, that doesn't quite make sense. I think Hebrews 10, 14 puts this exactly what Paul's, the way Paul's presenting it here. Listen to this verse again. Because it, it, it causes a tension in our souls that's meant to be there and God doesn't want to take away. Hebrews 10, 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Did you hear that? For by a single offering, you're already perfect if you're being made perfect. That's the way it works. It's that... You have every single hope to believe that you are going to be reconciled, blameless, holy, and above reproach on that day if you are holding to Jesus and pursuing him. The rest of your life, you have every hope to believe that when you get there, you will meet the words, well done, good and faithful servant. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so that's where we live. Because we live in this age that is not yet fully reconciled and we are called to live and lay our lives down for God and for Jesus wherever he may take us. Let me close with this illustration, which I think puts a helpful summary on the way we should respond to things like this and how we should hold to the gospel. This is from Melissa Kruger. I read Table Talk Magazine, which is a Ligonier Ministries devotional, and this was in the magazine yesterday, and I thought it was so applicable to the sermon. So as a I'm going to pray at the end of this, so worship team, you can begin to come on up if you want to, and, um, or just come in a minute, whatever, just come, just come, just come. And uh, we're going to give uh, financially in a second as well, and if you're a guest, please just let the offering plate pass you by. We're not asking for your money. We just want you to receive the word of God this morning. Um, here's what Melissa Kruger writes, and with this I'm going to close. 
Recently, I was preparing for a dinner party with friends and decided it was time to pull out my silver and china. I've had these items for years, but they hadn't made it onto my table as often as I'd have liked. When I opened my silver chest, I realized the result of my neglect. All the forks, spoons, and knives were covered with tarnish. I tried using a silver polish, but it required diligent scrubbing, after which spots remained. After polishing one piece, I began to think my dinner party could do without silver. However, I realized that if I didn't clean it now, I'd never be, it'd never be of any use at all, so I figured there must be an easier way, so I searched the internet for ideas. I found one that seemed fairly simple. The website instructed me to line a large bowl with an aluminum foil and then fill the bowl with warm water and dish detergent. All I had to do was place the silver in the bowl and wait, and somehow the tarnish would be removed. Somewhat skeptical, I decided it couldn't hurt to try, so I followed the instructions, and after about five minutes, I began to take the silver out of the bowl. Amazingly, the tarnish was gone. The cutlery was shiny with its original beauty. I, I couldn't believe it worked. It seemed too easy. After I washed and dried all the pieces, I emptied the bowl and noticed the remaining aluminum foil. When I placed it in the bowl, it was shiny and clean. But now, as I removed the foil, it was dirty and dingy. All the tarnish from my silver had somehow transferred to the aluminum foil. The silver could shine brightly because the aluminum foil had taken its tarnish. As I looked at the aluminum foil and glanced again at my bright, shiny, clean silver, I realized how even this chemical reaction, how it worked, I have no idea, displays the beauty of the gospel. Just like my silver, we're tarnished with sin. No amount of scrubbing or work can get us to reflect the glory that was once ours. Our sin must be transferred to someone else in order for us to shine again. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Just as the aluminum foil took on the tarnish, even though it previously had none, Jesus took on our sin so that we might shine for the glory of God. It seems too easy, doesn't it? We keep thinking we need to scrub ourselves clean, but he's made us clean once for all by his blood. So how do we respond? We're called to shine. We shine his glory by loving his truth, walking in his ways, and living in obedience to his commands, all for the display of his splendor. There's simply no better way to live. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together in your word and being reminded of the hope of the gospel and the good news. Drive it deeply into our marrow and make it to be a living thing inside of us so that all of our hope and all of our trust is anchored in Christ alone and we will never, ever depart from him. Keep us for that great day by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.